Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Book Network's New Books and Popular Culture. I'm here today with Anthony Leoy, who is the author of Nerd Ecology, Defending the Earth with Unpopular Culture. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. Wonderful. So I would just want to start out by having you sort of talk about how you came to write this book, how you came up with this idea and this research. Sure. So originally, the interesting thing is, uh, I didn't take the idea of nerd ecology very seriously at first. Um, it was kind of a throwaway concept that I included as an afterthought in a paper um, about Firefly and Serenity, uh, the Joss Whedon movies about space cowboys. Uh, and, and friends of mine who heard that paper said, that's a really important idea. You need to follow it up. Um, and, and I, and for several years, I sort of thought, no, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. It was just kind of a joke. Um, and then because of urging from even more friends, um, who had read that paper, I, I started taking the idea seriously, um, and then applying a kind of, um, eco-critical, um, environmental humanities lens to the concept of the nerd. And, um, the more I amassed, uh, primary sources, and the more I thought about them, the more I realized that there really was something here uh, about the idea of the nerd um, uh, as a person and a place and a thing, right, that all had environmental ecological dimensions. Um, so, so after I realized that, um, I, I started to, to delve further into the sources um, and I began to make some headway. So that's how the project started. Right. So and you start this with this sort of defining the nerd and letting folks know who nerds are and sort of that difference between the geek and the nerd. So could you talk a little bit about that sort of how you sort of define the nerd? Sure. So I start out um, talking about the the primary level, the first historical level of the term nerd Um as a term of disparagement, as a, as not as a name, this happens later, not as a name that people come to call themselves or a name for a particular subculture, but rather as an insult. Um, and so I, I distinguish nerd from geek um, for this reason, because in my reading of those terms, and, and I admit openly that this isn't the only way to read them, but in my way of reading those terms, um, at least in the pathologized sense, um, nerd is to geek as nature is to culture. So in other words, nerd is something that someone calls you um, when they are calling you um, inferior, uh, you know, physically incapable, sickly, um, not likely to survive, right? That's the primary uh, pathologized meaning of nerd. Whereas geek, um, you know, which as far as I can tell is a much older word um, in the English language, Geek, in my reading, means um, someone who is interested in a specialized region of knowledge. So um, if you think about the way people talk about geek, um, they can say, like, I'm a knitting geek or I'm a baseball geek. Um, so it, it doesn't necessarily uh, pertain simply to popular culture, right, um, mm -hmm. or to what we think of as nerd culture now. Um, there are all sorts of geeks. And, and also there's a distinction that I make. Um, uh, uh, of nerd as uh, an identity that you get called in public, right? Whereas geek is an identity um, that can be kept private. Like you can be a knitting geek in the privacy of your own home, right? And, and you don't have to perform that identity or nobody uh, labels you a geek necessarily in public. Whereas nerd starts out um, as an identity of public disparagement. Mm-hmm. And so then, and you talked a little bit about Firefly and Serenity, but what made you then move this into this 
popular culture sphere? What was it about popular culture and the use of that term nerd? Uh, well, I saw an opportunity to connect um, the rise of nerd culture, right, with um, with the project of creating uh, so-called environmental cultures or ecological cultures. Um, in, in other words, uh, eco-criticism and the environmental humanities as disciplines have always been interested uh, in transforming culture um, in an ecologically healthy direction. Um, so, so my, I, you know, I wrote a number of earlier papers where I claimed um, that popular culture and especially nerd culture had a lot of environmentalist and ecological content that was really being ignored um, both by analysts of popular culture, so scholars of popular culture per se, and also by scholars of environmental culture. Um, and so I saw, I saw an opportunity to bring those two together. And the reason that I, that I, I took it is that I realized that that wasn't um, something that I was making up, that, that there's actually an intersection of nerd and ecological thinking in the very idea of the nerd, right? Because my, my primary analysis of, um, of what I call the sign of the nerd itself, right, is that nerd starts out um, being three different related meanings. So one, it means um, uh, a person who is a loser or a prey animal, right, mm -hmm. in social Darwinian terms, um, who is not meant to reproduce, who will never survive to reproduce, who loses the struggle for existence. Um, and then when you move towards the place uh, idea of the nerd, nerds are associated um, with places like swamps and wastelands mm -hmm. uh, that are unproductive and poisonous and disease-ridden. And they're also associated with um, what I call the effluvia of those places, like um, the flow of disease and, and polluted rivers uh, and, and all of that. Right. And then the third association at the thing um, vertex of the nerd triangle uh, is uh, is with soulless or dead machines. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so. So. And as you progress right around that triangle, right, if you move from the person to the place to the thing, you get this dynamic of depersonalization mm -hmm. um, and and more and more pathologized identities. Um, so I began to to ask the question, um, what, does, what does nerd culture have to say about the problem of that identity or that set of identities? Right. And so then you sort of start with Mr. Spock and Star Trek, which is sort of the quintessential um, popular science fiction nerd culture. So can you talk a little bit about why Mr. Spock, why Star Trek and what it is about that? Sure. Um, so, so I should back up a little bit and say that um, one of the dynamics that identi I identified as part of the rise of nerd culture per se, right, is the moment when people who've been called nerds um, start to be proud of that identification and proud um, of uh, the popular culture uh, associations that have, that have popped up since the 50s around this identity. And of course, Star Trek is not the only one of those, um, but it's one of the great examples of those. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that I noticed is that there's a dynamic when people start identifying as nerds and they start meeting together in groups to celebrate some aspect of nerd culture. And in this instance, um, fan culture and more particularly Star Trek fan culture um, that there's this movement from from being the original idea of the nerd as this isolated um, loser who who is unable to form communities, right? To uh, to the formation of what I call the nerd alliance, mm -hmm. right? And so I I connect this notion of nerd alliance to the project um, of of an eco cosmopolitanism, in other words, um, the formation of international communities. Uh, that that are interested in defending the planet, right? And of course, um, this is the moment, you know, post Rachel Carson, mm -hmm. um, when environmental historians are identifying, right, one of the great waves of American environmentalism rising in the '60s, of course. Um, and Star Trek is part of that. And so, I identified Spock um, as this kind of quintessential 
uh, eco-cosmopolitan nerd, right, as as a character who represents um, someone who could otherwise be isolated for various reasons, who, you know, who's the scientist, who is the embodiment of logic, which are all nerd-identified mm-hmm. um, qualities, right? And and the story of Star Trek is from, you know, in this reading, the story of, um, among other things, Spock finding a community and then that community moving out, you know, further into the stars to form a larger community. And so that's that's what the the chapter on Star Trek is really about, about Star Trek as a, a narrative of eco-cosmopolitanism driven uh, by a nerd at the center. Mm-hmm. And in what ways, like, and in some ways, right, Spock is, how do I want to say it? He's an outsider in these spaces. Right. And so, so can you talk about that role as sort of being an outsider, being of, and he's also of sort of two different worlds, right? He's coming, right. can you talk a little bit about that and how that furthers your argument? Sure. Um, so, so one of the interesting things to note is that, um, there's a famous description of Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek's original pitch um, to to TV producers for Star Trek as describing Star Trek as wagon train to the stars, as kind of like a space cowboy uh, uh, show. And and actually, uh, you know, we have to we have to identify the tropes being used here. So um, in in that context, when science fiction starts. Uh, talking about other planets, right? Planet really stands in um, sometimes for nation and so, and the people of that planet, alien races stand in for, um, for other races, you know, in the American discourse of race. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Spock in that sense, because he's half Vulcan and half human in the show um, is this quintessential biracial character who is an outsider because he's um, he's from two worlds and in some sense, neither world culturally. He's stigmatized on Vulcan because he's part human um, and he's stigmatized on earth because he's part Vulcan. Um, And so he has this natural uh, trajectory, you know, away from identifying with one particular place or one particular race and a need to form an alliance with other characters. Right. And so then what you get Right. Are, um, you know, the, the, the archetypal great friendship between Spock, McCoy and Kirk. Right. Um, you know, as the process of these sort of quintessentially American Midwestern white male characters, Southern characters in, in McCoy's case, um, becoming uh, becoming best friends. Right. With this alien other character. And what I'm claiming is, you know, that Star Trek is intrinsically interested, of course, in talking about um, racialized and sexualized others um, as aliens. And so this, of course, includes Sulu and Uhura and Chekhov. Um, so the whole bridge crew, right, as many people have noted, obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, is an effort to, um, to stop othering others, right, and create a community that gets beyond white supremacy in American history. And, and so I connect that to the idea of getting beyond eugenics, getting beyond the, the American project of purifying the white race, um, of making sure that, that, uh, that whites stay in political and cultural control. Um, and, and so the entire, I read the entire history of Star Trek um, as an attempt uh, to get beyond American eugenics into ec- ecological cosmopolitanism. And so that launches a discussion um, of uh, the place of of the villain Khan, right, in mm-hmm. uh, Star Trek history, right, as the primary eugenic villain. So, and this is, it's not in your chapter, but how do you feel about sort of the latest reboot of Star Trek? Do you feel it's doing these same things or are uh, you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, well, so we should say probably for, for listeners who are unfamiliar with the controversy that the rebooted JJ uh, Abrams Trek um, starting in 2009 has been fairly controversial with certain traditionalist elements in Star Trek fandom um, in part because what, what Abrams did was he established an alternate Trek universe where all of the history that had come before um, essentially gets rewritten 
by the destruction of Vulcan. Uh, and, and so, uh, this is, you know, this is a, a long conversation in and of itself, but what I will say is that I actually read the new movies as an extension of the project of Trek and not as a repudiation mm-hmm. uh, of that project. Uh, uh, and so one of the things to note is that, uh, if you were going to repudiate Trek, one of the, in, in my terms, one of the first things you would do is decenter Spock. And of course, what the reboot does is it actually, not only recenters Spock, but it creates multiple Spocks, mm-hmm. right? So there's an older Spock from the original universe um, who then can encounter a younger version of himself, uh, who, and, and, you know, and they can interact, right, and talk about the metaverse that they're from, which is, of course, a way of, of having um, Star Trek fandom think about its own role um, in creating the Trek universe, right? So I, I actually think that the new movies... Um, are uh, are not only uh, an extension of the original universe, but actually an expression of this process um, that Chris Hardwick, uh, the comedian, calls nerdism, right? Like the philosophy of the crafty nerd, right? Who uses um, nerdy methods, uh, you know, like obsessing about everything mm-hmm. and uh, 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 being hyper aware of everything around you and so on. Uh, to, you know, to reflect on what it means to be a nerd and how to be a better nerd. Um, and so I kind of feel like the new, uh, the new tracks are an expression, right, of nerd culture reflecting back um, on its own sources. And so I, I actually really like the reboots. That's a great read of those because there is a lot of controversy. Yeah. So you move into then talking about this idea of sort of destruction of the sky. Yeah. Um, and Hunger Games and Matrix stuff. And so could you talk a little bit about that and what you're doing in that chapter? Um, sure. So, so that chapter grows out of the end of the Trek chapter, because one of the pathologies that I identify um, as a risk in Trek's eco-cosmopolitanism, right. Is, um, is this familiar trope of the, the energy being or the, the transcendent alien presence, right. Who really like grow out of, um, you know, the more traditional uh, Western ideas of the gods or the angels, um, you know, immaterial superior beings of pure mind, right? So mm-hmm. they come from the Neoplatonic tradition philosophically. Uh, and, and what I say is that Trek has these plots every so often, right, of meeting um, disembodied superior beings. So in Next Generation, it's the Q continuum, among others, um, you know, and, and then having a character like Spock, say, um, well, this is really where material existence is headed, right? Material beings really will evolve uh, beyond the need uh, to have material bodies and therefore the need to have, uh, to live in ecosystems and biospheres, right? And so um, I I worry about this problem, right? Because uh, nerds need refuge, right? Mm -hmm. And nerd culture has been a nerd refuge, right? But I worry about the tendency of imagining the refuge as an escape from materiality itself. Mm -hmm. So there's a, you know, the tradition of Western metaphysical dualism, extreme metaphysical dualism and salvation as escape from the universe. So in the, in the destruction of the sky chapter, I examine, um, I examine this problem in nerd culture and it's, it's expressions in things like the matrix and the hunger games, um, which have, virtual digital worlds, right. And sometimes virtual material worlds, um, that characters get trapped in and have to escape from. Um, and so one of the things that I discuss in the beginning of that chapter, right. Is, uh, the, the origin of the matrix as revealed in this really wonderful set of films called the animatrix, which was produced, um, obviously after the original matrix film, um, in which a number of short films are made, um, animated films in which it's revealed that um, that the matrix itself, uh, the structure of the of the matrix culture of machines parasitically sapping human energy um, to drive themselves, actually results from the environmental destruction that humans wreaked upon the planet in an effort to destroy machine sentience and, in fact, a machine polity, a machine nation that arises. Um, through a kind of slave rebellion when um, sentient, intelligent machines 
try to overthrow their human masters who've enslaved them. Um, so it turns out that, you know, at least if you accept this as the origin of the Matrix, mm-hmm. right, that the destruction of the sky, right, because in the Matrix, um, Earth's sky is completely blacked out by this dark cloud. Um, the destruction of the sky started as a mode of human warfare um, against sentient machines. So there's a there's a slave narrative. There's an environmental slavery narrative inside that story. And so I read that story as a way um, of talking about um, the, the, the way that social oppression and environmental destruction uh, go together, right? So this is the environmental justice chapter, if you want to think of it that mm-hmm. way. Um, and so I move from the Matrix to read, um, to read other artifacts like the Hunger Games um, in a more hopeful way, because I think that the Hunger Games in particular is a story about um, human slaves, human serfs who are trapped in a, in a fascist system um, who actually learn to destroy the false sky as a way of reuniting with the real material world uh, and, and that that rebellion, um, you know, that environmental liberation is also a political liberation. So, so Panem uh, gets the, you know, the system of Panem, uh, the country and the Hunger Games gets overthrown at the moment that Katniss and her allies um, learn how to destroy the virtual world of the Hunger Games, right? To turn the warfare of the Hunger Games against the, fa- the fascist rulers and create a real revolution, which is also a metaphysical and a physical revolution, right? Which turns towards an embrace of the physical world rather than a rejection of it. Um, so the falseness, right, that originally gets projected onto materiality itself is then revealed in the Hunger Games to be um, to be a kind of ideological uh, operation of fascism, right, and environmental injustice. Um, so, so I read I read that trajectory in nerd culture, hopefully as a way of um, of affirming environmental justice um, in a material world that we're trying not to escape. Right, and I really appreciate that read of the Hunger Games because so often it's read as this reality television kind of um, big brother is watching you issue. Right. And, and there is so much more in it with the environment and with thinking about sort of how the different factions exist and some are and, and what their roles are and sort of breaking out of those. So I appreciated that different read on the hunger Thank games. You. <clears throat> so um, you, Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no! Do you have more on the Hunger Games, or? Well, I, I mean, uh, not yet. Okay. Right? So, <laughs> I was just going to say that you move from that into um, talking about Tolkien. Yeah. And so, it, and sort of Tol- Tolkien's role and the role of <clears throat> the real world versus versus the virtual world and that kind of thing. And so, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about your Tolkien chapter. Okay. So. Um, so I moved from the Hunger Games, right, saying that um, with the Hunger Games, we have a nerd narrative uh, in, in which environmental justice is fought for and restored um, that, that ends with music, mm-hmm. right? So Katniss, um, this is sometimes not, not noted as I think it should be. Um, there are a number of important moments um, Katniss and the character Rue in the first book um, and Katniss thinking about her father, who is a singer, right. And Katniss is a singer herself, right. The, the books finally end um, with Katniss singing a song to her children, um, which is a lullaby, uh, which is the same song that she sang uh, at the beginning of her rebellion against the hunger games. And so I began to investigate this, this idea of connecting um, you know, the metaphysical dualism problem of the virtual world with virtual worlds of art. Um, and so the Tolkien chapter uh, really explores the, the foundation of Tolkien's cosmology in music and the notion of um, the material world of Arda in the Silmarillion and then later in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings uh, as uh, a world that has been created out of a divine singing. Right. So the notion that that the material world is a kind of uh, 
um, material realization of art. Um, so, so that's a way of bridging uh, the problem, right, of, uh, of escape, right, of escape to the virtual world um, from the oppressive material world. Because what Tolkien says in a really important essay um, of fairy stories, which you've told me you also teach. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so in, in that essay, Tolkien talks about uh, enchantment as the creation of uh, secondary worlds of art that, um, that people can inhabit. And Tolkien's idea of the secondary world of art and its relationship to the primary world um, is that uh, the secondary worlds of art act as refuges that are legitimate. In other words, Tolkien says, um, if there's really something horrible going on, like World War II <laughs> um, or a genocide, right, it's completely legitimate to flee into a refuge for that reason. Um, and so he thinks of art as one of those refuges. But what he says is the secondary world um, provides a place where people taking refuge can look back at the primary world and then figure out what to do about the problem that led them to seek refuge in the first place. And so he has this notion of moving back and forth skillfully between the secondary worlds of art and the primary world um, in order, in fact, to, to address the problems in the primary world uh, itself. So art for Tolkien is not what we would think of as a permanent escape. It's not a place to hide from the problems of the world, but it's a place to, first of all, um, be healed, to seek refuge with other people, um, you know, to develop community and then to move back into the primary world um, in order to seek to heal the problems that, are, that made you seek refuge in the first place. Um, and and that, that develops out of the Silmarillion. And then I, I read his creation narrative um, you know, into its consequences in the Lord of the Rings. Right. And so Tolkien as a fantasy takes place completely in that fantasy world, but do you still in that fantasy world, see those connections between the primary world and the secondary world? And are those quests sort of this move into that secondary world and leaving their primary world or. Um, Do you mean the, the the characters themselves? Yes. Right. Um, so yes, (laughs) yes. So, so, um, there, there are all these narrative lines. I mean, this, this goes back to the cosmopolitanism, uh, narrative from, from the Trek chapter. Um, so there are all these movements, right. Especially from the Shire into the wider world of middle earth, um, where, uh, local people have to take responsibility for the, the larger fate of their world. Um, and, and thereby, uh, you know, they begin to move back and forth between their local context and the, the larger cosmopolitan context of Middle Earth and its political problems in the Third Age, the War of the Ring, um, you know, which is what the Lord of the Rings is about, of mm-hmm. course. Um, and so what you see in that story uh, is a number of examples of characters learning how to use the power um, of art right. And as a, as a power to help heal the world. And so the, the great example of this that I think everybody recognizes, um, is, uh, Sam's battle, uh, with the spiders where he uses the, uh, the file of Galadriel, Mm -hmm. right. And he, he actually utters a prayer that he doesn't realize is a prayer. He's speaking a language that he doesn't uh, you know, he's, he's reciting a language that he doesn't understand himself and it evokes the light, um, of the file, right. And then drives the, the monster away. Um, and so, so this is related to Tolkien's philosophy of language, right. As a creative power, right. As the power that creates the world, which is obviously related to the Genesis narrative, right. But, um, but in middle earth, right. This is identified as, the power of, of culture and particularly the power of music and words acting together. Right. So it's the power of not only storytelling, but also specifically of poetic recitation and of prayer. Right. So he's praying Sam in that moment is praying to Elbereth, the star goddess. Um, and even though he doesn't know it. And so, you know, there are all these important moments um, where, uh, where characters 
are 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 acting in ways that are consistent with the Silmarillion that they don't even realize. And so the important thing to me about that in the end, right, uh, is that it provides what I call, I mean, it's actually not my term, but uh, it's a term that I use imported from eco-theology called a counter-apocalypse, mm-hmm. right? So rather than thinking about um, apocalypse as a destructive event that, that destroys the world and then nothing good happens, um, the counter, the tradition of counter-apocalypse um, is the literal revelation Right of unexpected possibilities inside what looks like a scenario of doom, right? And the great example of that in The Lord of the Rings is, of course, um, uh, aside from the destruction of the ring itself, uh, is when Eowyn uh, and Merry destroy the uh, the Lord of the Nazgul, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Black Rider. Um, so, uh, you know, Tolkien makes a big deal in The Lord of the Rings about the narratives and the prophecies that the wise of Middle-earth um, have inherited, and all of the all of the gaps in those stories that that uh, allow new things to happen, that actually indicate that people like hobbits who aren't written to the prophecies, um, and uh, and female agents like Eowyn, right, who famously, right, in the movie version, screams, "I am no man" when she kills the Nazgul, right, everybody's favorite moment. Um, so those are moments of counter apocalypse. Right when the original power of creation um, kind of bursts into the scene of history again and creates new possibilities, um, even when characters don't realize that that's what they're doing, uh, and so so that creates the possibility of what Tolkien identifies as the second music, right, where um, the wounds of the world are recreated when when humans, among other beings, start to sing in in the great music of the gods. Um, to heal the world of its wounds. Um, and I identify that as a, as a particularly useful trope for, um, for environmental thinkers and, uh, and activists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is totally beyond what you're doing in your book, but it's really interesting to listen to you to think about all the parallels between Tolkien and C.S. Lewis um, right. and, and, and many of the things you're saying, right? I mean, they were contemporaries. They were writing partners in, in right. many ways. But just to listen to that, uh, I don't know if Lewis has as much of that role of music, but there's a lot of this similar, um, even this eco, your um, discussion of the counter-apocalypse, right, really appears throughout C.S. Lewis's work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I mean, so, you know, if we're if we're going to talk about larger literary connections, I would also point to people like Madeleine Langle mm-hmm. and Ursula Le Guin, right, who, who do a lot to revise um, narratives of destruction into narratives of recreation, um, you know, where, where the function of art, right, is to, to, uh, to first tell the story, right, of how um, new creativity can heal the world, Right, but also to deflect um, these powerful uh, prophecies of doom, which frankly um, and I think very harmfully have have become inscribed um, in global environmental culture. Right, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of environmental apocalypse going around, which I think is frankly dysfunctional um, because it always it, it makes it feel like um, there's nothing we can do to stop the destruction of the planet. Right. And so if you think of these writers together, um, uh, Lewis and Langle and uh, and uh, uh, and Le Guin and Tolkien. Right. They're like a whole generation uh, of fantasy sci fi writers who are using the tropes of those genres. Right. In order to push back against um, the the narrative of inevitable world destruction, which, of course, arises in the middle of the 20th century because of the world wars and the advent of atomic weaponry and and so on. Mm -hmm. And it it echoes today, right? It's really interesting as you talk about that to see all that very much this do like the apocalypse. If we look at popular culture now, the apocalypse is always something that is, is destruction, right? Environmental destruction, social destruction, political destruction, and we can't stop it, right? The zombies right. are going to come and take over yeah, and we're exactly. done. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, and I do think that this is related actually to a trend in American 
history, literature, and larger culture, um, right, in which, uh, y- you know, the kind of lone hero or the, or the survivalist community, right, has to face its inevitable doom um, bravely and heroically, right, but in a way that either, one, dooms the group or just dooms everyone. And so actually we're coming now upon my great complaint about Cormac McCarthy's The Road, Mm. Um, you know, which really seems to me to be an exaggerated version. Like I actually think McCarthy in that book is saying exactly how much can we destroy the world, right? (laughs) And still create a narrative that has hope at the end, right? And so I really think that the logic of that narrative in its own terms um, has unraveled in realist literature, right? And that's one of the reasons why I think nerd culture and particularly sci-fi and fantasy as genres have really ascended into people's consciousness because realist fiction is having a very hard time getting itself out of this apocalyptic corner. Right. So let's talk about then one of my favorites, Buffy. Yay. And that, yes. <laughs> How could, <laughs> no, you, you, you just have to love, everyone has to love Buffy. Um, so can we, so you have a chapter on the Slayer and sort of the Slayer verse and, and Joss Whedon and Buffy. So can we talk a little bit? Can you talk a little bit about that chapter and what you argue in that chapter? Sure. Um, so so I moved to, to Joss Whedon in part because um, I, I think that this is the moment. Uh, Whedon is one of those creators uh, that, uh, using Chris Hardwick's term nerdist, right, can be identified as a nerdist creator. In other words, he is from a generation, um, what, he's probably about 50-ish now. Mm -hmm. Um, He's from a generation where nerds started to form communities. Um, You could be a nerdy kid and and know that you weren't alone, right, and get together with other nerds to play Dungeons & Dragons and all the other things that nerds do. Um, and, and but then the important thing about Whedon is that that he, among many other people, of course, um, uses uh, nerd culture as the basis for his own creations, right? So so I think of him as a as a nerdist creator, uh, and and Buffy is one of those uh, classic examples, right? Where of course the the basic narrative for 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 I guess the two or three people who don't who still don't understand Buffy. Um, <laughs> who are you? Why don't you understand Buffy? Um, go watch it right now. Yeah, sit down. Five minutes. Start. Right, just do it. Um, stop listening to the podcast and go watch Buffy. And then yes. Um, so, so <laughs> anyway, uh, Buffy is the story of uh, the kind of archetypal, petite, pretty blonde girl who seems to be the victim in horror movies, right, who turns out to have this secret power to um, to fight vampires and other monsters, um, and and the way this is framed is that Buffy becomes a slayer in adolescence, and uh, and so when she falls into this gothic world uh, of demons and vampires that she has to fight, um, she is allegorically you know fighting the fight of high school students and particularly nerdy high school students um, against these larger forces of corrupt institutions. Um, and so I read I read uh, all of Whedon's work basically uh, as being about uh, small groups of allies uh, creating new institutions inside older corrupt institutions uh, which have become degenerate and oppressive. Um, and you know, in high school, the the high school is hell trope is kind of the archetype of that idea in in Whedon's work. Um, so, so of course, Buffy is a female messiah, but what is really important about Buffy to me, right, is that uh, the, the narrative of, of moving from a lone nerd, right, who is going to die uh, into an alliance, right, which survives through friendship and mutual support um, becomes a, an overtly feminist narrative, Right of uh, a girl who is from a lineage that was actually created by a patriarchal group of men in prehistory, right? And so the, na- the Slayer narrative is that there's only one Slayer at a time. It's always a teenage girl. She dies, and then a new one is chosen, and the cycle just keeps perpetuating itself. Um, and so what's important about Buffy to me is that not only does Buffy insist upon creating an alliance, right, so that she herself doesn't die, 
right? And mm-hmm. that and that her community learns to defend itself and not be dependent on her as the Messiah all the time. Um, but in the end, at least the end represented by the end of the TV show, um, the the show arcs back upon that narrative and changes the shape of the story so that um, Willow and Buffy, Willow being the, the super powerful witch, best friend character, Willow and Buffy collaborate at the end to release the power of the Slayer um, into all of the girls of the world who are prepared to stand up and defend themselves. Um, and so there's this powerful moment where the nerd alliance narrative becomes an alliance that is overtly feminist and utopian. Um, and, and of course that gets complicated in the Buffy comics, which I also recommend that people read because they're still going strong. Um, but, but that is the significance to me uh, of Buffy. That is, it's first of all, an overtly nerd feminist uh, cultural artifact mm-hmm. instead of narratives and tropes. Uh, and, and that uh, it also uh, it also opens up um, new utopian possibilities, right? And I actually think that that uh, utopias are hard to come by in popular culture, as we've been saying at the moment, and so we can't ignore any of them. Right, and, and one of the things you talk about, you've talked about, is this idea of self-defense and world defense sort of being the same thing? Yes. And can you talk a little bit about how sort of Buffy and, and some of the rest of Whedon's sort of universes, uh, sure. you mentioned Firefly and Serenity, but that idea is really fascinating to me as well. So in, in terms of the Buffyverse, we have a kind of eco-cosmopolitan narrative where, you know, Buffy gets defined originally as a demon slayer, right? And then it turns out that um, moving beyond the human world into the, the magical realm, um, right, which of course in traditional enchantment narratives is the realm of the fairies, right? The dangerous realm of these superhuman forces. Um, you know, she discovers that, that, I mean, to put it baldly, that demons are people too, right? <laughs> um, and, and so there's this revision, there's a further revision, this is very Star Trek-y, right? There's a further revision of the alien other who is dangerous, right? Uh, racialized other, uh, you know, who then becomes the friend, right? So in the end, the Scooby gang of Buffy's friends comes to include um, not only vampires, but pure demons, mm-hmm. right? Who, who turn out to, you know, have a politics of their own. And so, um, so to me, this is also an eco-cosmopolitan narrative of learning to take other species seriously um, uh, and, and to defend the common world that they share. Um, and so in, in Buffy, right, that of course is a project of world defense, which is often um, the, you know, the, the idea of defending our home dimension, right, is the way it's usually put in Buffy. Um, but in Firefly, which is the space cowboy, like post Star Trek Whedon universe, uh, the beloved Firefly show, which only lasted a season and then produced um, the movie Serenity uh, in order to close the narrative. Uh, to give closure to the fans. Um, <laughs> yes, I needed in, that. <laughs> me too. Famously fan-sponsored movie. Um, that is then turned overtly into um, into a narrative about environmental justice and fighting against political corruption and the literal environmental pollution that it produces. So very quickly, um, Serenity is the uh, Firefly. Serenity is the story, right of. Uh, this band of, of friends in this plucky little spaceship, which looks like a firefly from, from the distance. Um, and they are fighting uh, this kind of oppressive, uh, it should be like this kind of degenerate form of the Star Trek Federation. It's called the Alliance, right? So we see those nerd tropes coming back again in altered form. Uh, you know, and the idea is that the Alliance uh, is trying to produce order um, by drugging uh, the citizenry of various planets into submission. And so the, the, the plot of Serenity, the movie reveals um, that what Firefly had been building up to the TV show had been building up to is the revelation that there's this secret planet that has been hidden on purpose called Miranda <clears throat> that was poisoned by a drug that was used to pacify uh, the inhabitants of the planet, but actually what winds up happening is that it pacifies them into absolute inactivity so that they don't move, they don't eat, right? They, civilization just stops, right? So there's an attempt to impose 
a kind of absolute fascist control um, through a drug that is spread throughout the biosphere uh, of the planet. Uh, and then one of the, the after effects is that even though most of the people on the planet die, uh, a small percentage of the population turns into these kind of crazy zombies, uh, you know, zombie cannibals, the Reavers, uh, who are the primary villains um, uh, in the Firefly universe. But in the TV show, we didn't know uh, why they were there or where they had come from. Um, so it turns out, actually, that Firefly Serenity as well, right, is the story of um, a band of activist friends uh, uh, learning, right, that they've been deceived uh, and that their government has poisoned an entire planet and produced this kind of scourge that comes back to haunt uh, the entire solar system. Uh, and, and you know, and the plot uh, eventually winds up being a plot of new media, actually, where the, the Firefly crew has to unearth the evidence that this has happened to Miranda and then spread it throughout what is essentially an interplanetary internet. Um, and, you know, the story calls that uh, the signal, getting the signal out, right? And so, uh, so one of the things we see in Firefly, right, is another set of nerd strategies, right? What are nerds good at? They're good at, uh, like, <laughs> like Willow and Giles, in Buffy, they're good at doing research and unearthing secrets and understanding something that hasn't been explained um, and that people are trying to hide, right? And then getting the word out through information media, right? So I see this as a kind of, um, uh, not only as a nerd liberation narrative, but as a nerd activism narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, what can nerds do to battle environmental injustice and other kinds of social injustice um, by um, by being nerdists, by capitalizing on on the things that nerds are already good at, and then you move into um, the world of the sort of superhero, the comic book superhero, right? So, right. could you talk a bit about that world and those what you found there? Sure. Um, so, uh, Whedon fans are already aware that. Uh, Whedon was very deeply influenced by superhero comics and in particular the X-Men. Uh, and in fact, uh, he became an X-Men writer for a while. There's a, there's a famous run of the X-Men where he brings back his favorite character, Kitty Pride. Um, and, and so I go into the, the super, the link between the Whedon verse and the superhero chapter, right? Is through Whedon himself. But I, I use that bridge in order to talk about, um, the development of uh, of the figure of the planetary defender, right? What does it mean to to imagine yourself uh, as someone who is capable of defending a planet, right? Um, uh, and, and in particular, in environmental and and uh, environmental justice terms, right? Because uh, obviously, right, like we're none of us are really raised to think of ourselves <laughs> as people who are capable of defending the entire Earth. And so, um, so I read the tradition of American superhero comic books as a tradition that is, um, you know, that of course, as, as people already know, is reaction, reacting to the crisis of World War II, uh, among other things. But, but then moving into an explicitly um, environmental defense mode where, you know, we see characters uh, like Golden Age characters, like Superman, you know, uh, thinking of himself as... Uh, a planetary savior um, of Wonder Woman coming from Paradise Island explicitly to quote unquote um, uh, change man's world, right? Which mm -hmm. is identified with the entire world <laughs> and so on. Um, and then when you get to the Marvel characters in the silver age in the sixties, right? We have characters who are created essentially by in their environmental circumstances and often by environmental disaster, Right, so the Fantastic Four are exposed to cosmic radiation. Um, the mutants of the Marvel Universe, in particular the X-Men, are created. They're called Children of the Atom, right? So they're, uh, at least at first, they're thought of as um, products of genetic mutation caused by the atomic age um, and its radiation and also environmental pollution. And so I, I read the comic books uh, superhero comics, which are really a very denigrated genre, right? I mean, even mm -hmm. in, as you know, well, um, you know, in universities where 
people are have a grudging acceptance of teaching graphic novels, right? It's still stigmatized to actually teach like a Thor comic or a Wonder Woman comic. Right. <laughs> um, you know, there's still you still get the side eye. Like, what is that about? Um, and so I was concerned uh, in, in that sense, especially pedagogically, um, in talking about this tradition as a way of helping readers to imagine themselves as gaining the power um, to defend the world. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, there are two separate discussions uh, that are split kind of along DC Marvel lines. Uh, so I talk about the figure. Um, of the icon of virtue. Um, in other words, uh, characters like Superman and Wonder Woman who are especially shiny, <laughs> right? Yes. And, uh, and clothed in, in bright primary colors. Um, and they represent the kind of characteristics that people need to cultivate, like bravery and compassion uh, and so on, in order to, to be capable or to become capable of defending the world. Um, and then the other tradition is the tradition um, uh, that I identify with, particularly with the X-Men, um, the tradition of the hero of change or the, the hero um, of mutation, where um, people who are products of the problem, right? So people who are born into and born from uh, environmental pollution and environmental destruction uh, learn that they have gained powers Right, that they're born with, but that they have to d- both discover and cultivate in a community. Right, so so one of the things that's typical of that tradition uh, is that uh, the idea of the school, right, comes back in as a positive place where you join a community where you cultivate your powers and you learn to um, to both defend yourself and to defend the world. Right, so there's always this parallel that kind of scales up from learning to defend yourself to learning to defend your community to learning to, to heal the world. Um, and that those activities are always thought of, um, you know, uh, as, uh, as things that build on, on each other and that lead into each other. Um, so, so really the argument in that chapter, right. Is that, uh, even though in fandom sometimes and in analysis, even in academic analysis, the DC and the Marvel universes are sometimes opposed I want to read them together, um, you know, as a kind of uh, handbook, right, for cultivating individual virtue in community that leads to planetary defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that. It's interesting because growing up, I was much more a DC person, right? Like Batman. Who you like in particular? Yeah. Oh, Wonder and, Woman. Like uh-huh. Wonder Woman and Batman, right? Those were my, like, and and I love actually the history of Wonder Woman, right? Oh, yeah. And and even the history of the creator of Wonder Woman. But I've really appreciated Miss Marvel, right? I'm looking at my bookshelf with Miss Marvel and with Moon Girl and the Devil Dinosaur. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. Like these great sort of new ways that Marvel is bringing in these young women and thinking about, like, science and thinking, like, like Moon Girl, it's okay to be a nerd, right? Like, she gets to be oh, a yeah. nerd and it's really okay to be a nerd. But DC is also doing this great job with, and, and I'm really interested in how, like, because it's, Often it's like young women should not be reading comics, right? Young women should not be doing these things. And, and DC has changed that too with my daughter has this whole series. Now she has all these like DC has the superhero girls and the superhero girl high. And so instead of being sexualized, poison ivy is, um, you know, like, like they all are even, um, uh, what's her face? I can't. I'm thinking. Killer Frost? Um, no, Mar. Uh, shoot, I'm blanking. But they all have um, different. Oh, Harley Quinn. Harley Quinn Harley is Quinn. it? Is yeah. it sexualized in this way? Instead, she's punny, and her gift is being humorous, right? Yes. <laughs> but right. they. But and they all get to. They all these young girls get along, and the girls get to see being strong, and you know. So that whole idea of the comics and how these comics for me are sort of looking at young women, but also telling young women it's okay to be right. Especially with, I, I think moon girl is one of the best things that's come out lately. But no, that- I, I totally agree. No, I love moon girl and devil dinosaur because of course it's, you know, like a genius black girl whose best friend is a giant red dinosaur. <laughs> right. <laughs> like who doesn't love that premise? Um, but, but one of the things that we should note for people who are unfamiliar with the comics at the moment is that, um, that as you say, right, a lot of heroes that have been traditionally male are now um, are, are now uh, transformed 
into uh, in, into female versions or female extensions or just original female heroes. So, for instance, Iron Man is now a woman, mm-hmm. um, a young woman who goes to MIT. Uh, so there's a so Jane Foster is now Thor. Uh, you know, so and uh, Ms. Marvel is particularly important to me because you know people. People have such trouble talking about intersectional intersectional analysis, mm-hmm. where we talk about race, class, gender, sexuality, and so on together, and nationality and religion, right? And Ms. Marvel is this wonderful character who also is a comic book nerd in her own world. Like, so she's a a Muslim Pakistani American from Jersey City, um, who grows up uh, idolizing Carol Danvers, um, mm-hmm. who's Captain Marvel, right, and Avenger. And then it turns out that Ms. Marvel is is an inhuman, right? So, um, so under the right circumstances, she, um, you know, her genetic powers manifest, so she is able to become a superhero too, um, you know. But it, like, there's this wonderful uh, effect. So, first of all, Ms. Marvel is selling like hotcakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it is, yeah. Right. Like, like one of the things people have said is like, well, you know, if that happens to comic books, will anybody buy them? And it's like, yeah, everybody's buying them. Oh, yes. Um, you know, and in fact, there was this wonderful moment in my local comic shop that I, I, I have to uh, relate uh, because uh, these uh, these two guys came in and they actually went up to the owner and said, you know, do you have any comic books with Muslim superheroes? And and he he immediately pointed them to Ms. Marvel and um, and they started to read it because it turns out they were looking. Um, one of them was the father of a, of a, a young girl and he wanted to introduce her to comic books. Right. Uh, and and so Ms. Marvel, you know, he started to read Ms. Marvel. He and I think his brother started to read Ms. Marvel and they just went, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, and a bunch of people uh, in the shop said, yeah, this is a really good comic book that that everybody is reading now. And they just turned and said, everybody's reading this. And we all said, yeah, because it's great. Um, You know, so so one of the things that I think is particularly powerful about this moment in comic books, uh, you know, is that uh, there's a lot of transformation uh, going on in the original characters themselves, where the archetypes are being repeated and reinvented in these super cool ways. And in fact, I don't know, have you read the issue of Ms. Marvel where she, she goes to Pakistan, right. And discovers that there's a water war happening. Right? I haven't read that one yet. Oh, it's so interesting. So like, yeah, the, so there's a, she goes to Pakistan and meets uh, a local uh, superhero, right. Who is also, who's a young man. Right. And he and she wind up having this conversation about how she as an American, right, doesn't understand Pakistani politics and what's going on, right, with the problem of stealing water from local communities. And so this overtly environmental uh, issue, um, the problem of access to water, uh, to clean water and the corporatization of water access, right, becomes thematized in a story in which this Muslim Pakistani girl, right, who is figured as the other, right, um, in her American context by the villains, by her villains, um, mm-hmm. then goes to Pakistan where everybody, of course, says, oh, you American, like, what do you know, right? You need to come back here and actually listen to us, right? So there's, e- there's, there's even this kind of um, eco-cosmopolitan narrative evolving in Ms. Marvel. Mm-hmm. Which is awesome. Yeah. So yeah. We, yeah, we've been talking for a while. So you sort of have this, your conclusion is sort of this um, move to getting people to sort of think about how, like move beyond just sort of reading the text. And and so can you talk a little bit about your conclusion and what you'd like to sort of see happen next? Yes. Um, so uh, in the writing of the book, I think this happens a lot, <laughs> right? <laughs> Where I didn't, I wasn't sure what the conclusion was going to be until I got there. And then what I realized was that the book was really leading up um, to uh, uh, the beginning of a new philosophy that I, that I called metahumanism, right. Uh, From the word metahuman, which is actually from the DC tradition, um, as you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and metahumans being uh, originally, I mean, just now the way metahuman is used um, in the comics and also 
uh, in the the DC television universe uh, of Greg Berlanti and The Flash and Supergirl, metahumans are superpowered people, right? People with mm-hmm. superpowers, uh, and and so uh, the book led me to this conclusion, right? That uh, that the next evolution of nerd culture, if you will, right, was uh, to overtly think about what it meant. Uh, to to enact the stories that we love so much, to embody them uh, in a way that allows us to confront the, this age of environmental crisis and catastrophe that we're in. And so uh, I connected this to the idea that is already current in the environmental humanities called post-humanism, mm-hmm. right? In which the notion is that uh, that in order to solve environmental problems on this vast scale, we really have to get uh, to the to the heart of uh, traditional Western philosophies of human supremacy, right? That humans should dominate the earth, that we deserve to dominate the earth, that the earth is here for our use, including all of the other species, right? And so, um, so post-humanism it broadly is the attempt to move beyond that kind of human supremacy ideology, right? And so, I, I identify metahumanism, you know, as the nerd culture equivalent or the nerd culture contribution to this effort um, to get beyond uh, the notion that, you know, that the world is something that humans um, own and can destroy as we wish, um, you know, into this broader idea uh, that nerd culture can help us recreate um, human cultures in, in a, a more positive ecological framework. Um, and, and so this idea is not mine, right? Uh, it, you know, it's, it happens all over comic books and other parts of nerd culture, as I tried to show in the rest of the book, but I concentrated particularly as an example, um, on two examples of Promethea and Alan Moore's Promethea, um, the superhero, uh, who, uh, whose origin story is, uh, she's an artist. She's a young woman artist who draws her way into becoming her favorite comic book hero, Promethea. Um, so, uh, and then the second one is uh, Kitty Pride in her role in, in the current guardians of the galaxy narratives where Kitty has to become even more powerful in order to save an entire planet Spartax um, from an attack by an evil insect race. Um, and in both of these examples, we have, um, examples of environmental apocalypse, right, which is overcome uh, by by becoming conscious of the stories that you've been telling yourself about yourself, right, and figuring out how to use um, art, right, to um, to become not just a more powerful person, right, but a more powerful person in a community, right, that is trying to defend and heal the world, um, and so so the the book ends. Uh, with a series of principles, it's like a decalogue <laughs> in some ways. I didn't do that on purpose, but you know that doesn't matter. It's still ten principles um, of of metahumanism, uh, which I called uh, a prolegomenon uh, for an evil plan for doing good. Because um, you know you don't want to get ahead of yourself. <laughs> um, but that's the way the book ends. As a kind of here are some things that if you if you agree with this this plan to create an ecological culture out of nerd culture, um, here are some things you can do, right? So the book definitely ends um, with the attempt to outline a new ethos, right, which nerd culture has been developing, uh, and to sort of look back and say, what are these principles that we can use to embody um, world defense in our own lives? Right, which I think uh, at this point in time we might really well, very well need, right? <laughs> well, that's the theory, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, m- many, many aspects of this point in time. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so I have to say that one of the things I'm looking forward to uh, and that I hope happens is that, that uh, when and if people read the book, um, that it starts a conversation that goes beyond my work itself, right? Because I would mm-hmm. really love to hear people's reactions to those premises, to those arguments, and to the notion of building a metahumanist culture um, that, that gets beyond the problem, right, of, uh, of the ubermensch, right? Because right. a lot of superhero 
cultures uh, and stories have explicitly had to repudiate particularly the Nazi idea of the Superman that destroys um, lesser beings and dominates them on the way, right? To talk about what it means to develop powers without becoming the evil oppressor yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think that this is, um, this is quite a poignant problem for nerd culture because, of course, as we know, right, nerd culture is not always a healthy culture and there's, um, there's plenty of sexism and racism and other kinds of interpersonal violence and structural oppression in nerd culture itself. Right. And, um, and we, you know, and we really need like in the age of the San Diego comic-con, right. Where we get together in the hundreds of thousands, right. And we're on the internet all the time. We really need to deal with that aspect of nerd culture in a productive way. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been wonderful talking to you. Thank you, Anthony, so much. Again, this is Anthony Leoy, the author of Nerd Ecology, Defending the Earth with Unpopular Culture. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Mm -hmm. 